Okay, well, good evening. We are in our fourth week of the series entitled Historic Christianity's Seven Dangerous Ideas. And uh, this week we'll be looking at the question of God's existence. Uh, there are many people who suggest that uh, belief in God is unreasonable, that it's based upon superstition. And so we have this entire movement uh, called the New Atheism. Uh, uh, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, uh, Dan Dennett ha- are sometimes called the, the four horsemen of the new movement entitled uh, uh, the New Atheism. Well, they argue that God's existence is not reasonable. And so this evening, uh, I want to present the dangerous idea that uh, God makes the best sense about reality that believing in God makes sense of uh, all of the most meaningful phenomena of life. And so uh, I'm going to be presenting uh, an argument that uses a mnemonic device. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, the word CLEAR, C-L-E-A-R, and each of those letters stands for an argument uh, about particular uh, areas. So tonight we'll be engaging skeptics, And uh, we'll be answering the question, what rational basis do you have for believing that God actually exists? And so one of the dangerous ideas that we will explore in this series, and I might add I'll be writing a book about, will be this question that uh, one can reasonably conclude uh, that God exists. One can argue for God's existence. And, of course, I'm going to argue that God is the best explanation for reality. And uh, I argue that way from uh, by using this word clear, C-L-E-A-R. So the title is Clear Pointers and Signposts to God. And uh, by using that word clear as a mnemonic device, um, as an acrostic, if you will, uh, the C stands for cosmos. And so we'll be examining the singular beginning of the cosmos. We'll look at the order in the cosmos as well as its fine-tuning. The L in the word clear stands for life. Uh, We'll look briefly at human consciousness, free agency, and meaning in life. The E in the word clear is for ethics. Uh, Ethics are prescriptive. They're objective in nature. We'll look at uh, moral and ethical duties. The A in the word clear is abstractions. Uh, that God makes the best sense of things like numbers, propositions, logic, and universals. And then finally, the word R in this word clear, C-L-E-A-R, stands for religion, that uh, belief in God makes sense of the human uh, sense of the divine, of our religious experience, and then finally, uh, the miracles of the life of Jesus. So let's... uh, Let's begin our discussion of reasoning to God. Again, there are many people who argue that belief in God is just unreasonable, uh, that it is a, a position that's based upon superstition, that's not based upon careful thinking. And I argue here that one of Christianity's dangerous ideas is that believing in God makes real sense. Now, I'm going to present a series of arguments, and I want you to appreciate, first of all, that this material can be represented as individual distinct arguments for God's existence. 
there are at least five distinct arguments that you could utilize in this material. However, this material can also represent a cumulative case of evidence on behalf of affirming God's existence. Uh, the uh, journal, uh, the Areopagus Journal, which is a philosophical, theological journal uh, done by uh, a group of evangelical scholars, uh, they made the point about my book, A World of Difference, that I took a cumulative case approach uh, to proving God. And, and I think that's right. I think that uh, rather than, as I was in the early part of my apologetic career, rather than being an evidentialist, a presuppositionalist, or embracing the new Reformed epistemology through my interaction with people like Alvin Plantica, that I have probably arrived at a position for affirming God that is known as an abductive approach. Uh, and essentially what I'm doing in this apologetic approach is to argue that God is the best explanation for the meaningful reality we discover in the world. And so you can argue individually, uh, you can utilize these specific arguments, or you can use them as a cumulative case. That is... Uh, these arguments uh, add various things. So while each individual argument has a certain logical or evidential force of its own, taken collectively, the arguments have an ever-increasing probative force in favor of God's existence. Uh, let me explain it this way. Uh, when O.J. Simpson was placed on trial in Los Angeles in the 1990s, it wasn't, one, it wasn't simply one piece of evidence that led me to conclude that uh, the former football player O.J. Simpson actually killed these two people. It was a cumulative case. It was a variety of evidence together that made me conclude that, uh, that uh, O.J. was in fact guilty. Now, let me begin by talking about the place of arguments within Christian apologetics. And here I'm here I'm borrowing some quotations from a Christian philosopher named Paul Copan. He makes four points about apologetic arguments. So what is the place of argumentation when it comes to people accepting uh, the truth of Christianity? Uh, Professor Copan says, number one, successful arguments aren't, are not, aren't, knockdown, down, airtight, and non-negotiable proofs or self-evident reasons with mathematically certain conclusions. He continues. He says, the aim of these arguments regarding God's existence and nature is more modest than this, namely to show that their conclusion are more plausible or reasonable than their denials, that they're highly probable and offer the best explanation for important features of our universe or human experience. I accept what Professor Copan says there, the arguments that I'm going to be presenting to you this evening, I don't think should be seen as deductive, mathematically certain arguments. Rather, what I'm going to argue is that this cumulative case of arguments are more probable and more plausible than their denials. They're not certain. Uh, Christians, of course, come to certainty through the work of the Holy Spirit. But I am going to ask you, as we look at these arguments, to ask yourself, are these arguments more plausible, more reasonable than their denials? Now, Copan has a second point. He says, quote, good arguments should be presented in an environment of prayer. Uh, 
and dependence upon God's empowering spirit, engaging personal relationships, Christian character, and loving Christian community. Uh, I think this is a very important point, that when it comes to reasoning to God, uh, these arguments have a context, and that context is the work of the Spirit in people's lives. Uh, It's also supported by strong Christian relationships, Christian character, and many people are persuaded of the truth of Christianity by a recognition that they're able to join a loving Christian community. Uh, I know of one skeptic in particular who admitted that his loss of Christian faith, falling back into skepticism, was in measure connected to his belief that the Christian community that he was part of no longer had embraced him. And so we don't often think much about that, but I think it's something we should give reflection to. Part of the truth of the Christian faith is the community that presents those arguments. And so a loving, caring Christian community can make it make the truth of Christianity more believable. Copan has a third point. He says this, these arguments aren't just relevant for atheists, conscious disbelievers, and agnostics, not knowing non-believers. They apply to non-theistic religionists, Buddhists, Hindus, Jains, Shintos. So the arguments that I'm going to be presenting this evening, uh, they're not just true for, they're, they're not just challenges for skeptics and atheists, but they can also be relevant uh, to members of the world's religions. Because remember that Buddhism, the earliest form of, of Buddhism, uh, they deny that God exists. And so these arguments are applicable in our discussions with members of non-Christian religions. And then finally, Copan has this point. He says, quote, number four, given God's reconciling intentions and self-revealing actions toward the world through Christ, persuading people to believe in God, though important, is still incomplete. So the point that Copan is making, and I want to underscore as well, is that we not only want to show people that reasoning to God is plausible, reasonable, and rational, but that would be just the first step in then uh, leading them to a discussion about the person of Jesus Christ. Believing in God is not enough. We must believe that God has come in the flesh as the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he has laid down his life as a sacrifice for human sin. Okay, again, this evening we're looking at this dangerous question. My dangerous uh, answer this evening is uh, dangerous in the sense that uh, a dangerous argument goes contrary to the way the paradigm thinking is. I'm going to argue that God is the best explanation for reality. And again, I'm going to appeal to the word clear, C-L-E-A-R, uh, that that God's existence, there are clear pointers, signposts, if you will, and the word clear is going to be used as an acrostic, as a mnemonic device. Uh, if I can remember this word, and I remember that each letter of this word uh, helps me to present arguments, then I'm, in a, then I'm in a good position when I'm talking to intelligent people about the faith. Well, let's begin with the first letter in the word clear, and of course it's C. And that C stands for cosmos, which is the the Greek word for world or for universe. 
And I'm going to argue that God is the best explanation for three features with regard to the universe. That God is the best explanation for the fact that the universe had a singular beginning. Uh, Secondly, that this universe exhibits order and elegance. And thirdly, that this cosmos is fine-tuned in a very complex manner. So uh, the letter C, again, for cosmos, and we will then begin a discussion of what many people would call the cosmological argument. And, And notice that I'm going to be taking these arguments and putting them together in a cumulative case. One of the quotations that I really enjoy in philosophy comes from the German philosopher and mathematician Gottfried Leibniz, whose dates are 1646 to 1716. He asks what I consider to be the ultimate metaphysical question. Leibniz says, quote, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? Of course, when I raise this question with some of my skeptical friends, they say, well, of course, the the universe is there. Uh, We wouldn't be here to notice it if it hadn't come into being. But see, I I think that really misses the, the deeper question. The question is, why does anything exist at all? Uh, isn't there something that would be more normal or uh, w- wouldn't it be more reasonable in a sense if nothing existed? But the universe does exist. So let's talk a little bit about the universe having, having a beginning and how we explain that beginning. Let's consider, for example, the words of the esteemed cosmologists Stephen Hawking and Roger Penrose about this idea that the universe had a beginning. And I might tell you that Stephen Hawking is almost universally regarded as the world's greatest scientist. He is considered the Einstein of our time. Uh, And his very close mathematician friend, Roger Penrose, they have uh, studied together at the university and have become two of the greatest uh, scientists in the world. This is what they say about the singular beginning of the universe. Uh, This is from the writing, The Nature of Space and Time, page 20. They say, quote, almost everyone, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Uh, in, In fact, in the scientific community, If you were to reject Big Bang cosmology, you would largely be considered a crackpot. That is how strong this cosmological position has become. And so the universe is now viewed by the leading cosmologists as having a beginning. And not only that, that time itself had a beginning. Now, if I can jump ahead just to a little bit, to to tease you a little bit. There's only one holy book in the history of the world that actually talks about not only the beginning of the universe, but the beginning of time. And it's none other than the Judeo-Christian Bible. Uh, There's a handful of passages that say that there was something before time. And the biblical doctrine of creation ex nihilo, that the universe came into existence out of nothing, seems powerfully compatible with this idea of the universe having a beginning. 
Now, I am very much aware that there are Christians who are a bit troubled by the Big Bang. I'm not quite sure I understand why, in the sense that all the Big Bang is saying is that here is a scientific explanation for the singular beginning of the universe. If that's the case, it seems awfully compatible with a a creationist position. Some people think that the Big Bang teaches that the universe came into existence without any cause. Uh, That's not part of the Big Bang presentation. It simply says we don't know what or how or why. We know that the universe had a beginning. Okay. According to the prevailing scientific view of cosmology, the space-time-matter-energy universe had a distinct and singular beginning about 14 billion years ago. If you want to be more specific, uh, cosmologists believe that the universe came into existence out of nothing. That is, space-matter, space-time-matter-energy came into existence out of nothing about 13.7 billion years ago. Here is uh, a picture to kind of help you image some of the things that uh, go into Big Bang cosmology, that the universe had a beginning, uh, that it has been going ongoing a, a radical expansion. Uh, and that period, if you look at the bottom of the chart here, the Big Bang expansion, 13.7 billion years ago. Now, again, some people are a bit troubled by this idea. Uh, people in particular who might be troubled by this would be people who believe in a young Earth or a young universe. Um, yet I would argue that other than the time dimension, the beginning of the universe seems powerfully in accord with the doctrine of creation. Now, let me let me give you a few quotations from some of the leading scientists in the field. These are not in particular, Christian people. Uh, These are simply some of the best astrophysicists in the world. So leading astrophysicists John Barrow and John Stilk uh, state the following concerning the Big Bang universe. They say, quote, our new picture, new picture of the universe, our new picture is more akin to the traditional metaphysical picture of creation out of nothing. For it predicts a definite beginning to events in time. Indeed, a definite beginning to time itself. Now, what I find intriguing here is that while there are Christians who are a bit troubled by what we might call old earth creationism, that the universe is 13.7 billion years old, that the earth is 4.5 billion years old, um, while sometimes Christians with a young earth orientation are troubled by that, let me tell you that there are a lot of atheists that are very troubled by this doctrine, uh, excuse me, by this scientific theory called Big Bang Cosmology. Why? Because you have a more traditional interpretation that everything came into existence out of nothing. Uh, Here, Barrow and Silk even use that language, creation out of nothing. So atheists are not terribly fond of this position. In fact, I have a quotation here from the agnostic philosopher Anthony Kenny. He's a British philosopher, and I might add a very good one. Uh, He says in the five ways, quote, a proponent of the Big Bang theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that matter came from nothing by nothing. So the traditional theological orientation seems to be much in accord with a Christian concept of creation. And that tends to make some atheists quite uneasy. 
Now, let's, uh, let's talk specifically about how some of these arguments take shape. One way to present the cosmological argument, and again, you can present it in a couple different forms, but one is called the Kalam cosmological argument. The word Kalam comes out of the medieval Islamic thinking. Uh, it has to do with theology or philosophy. But look at this uh, very brief but concise argument for the beginning of the universe and how we conclude to God. This is in the form of a syllogism. In logic, a syllogism is where you have two premises followed by a conclusion. Uh, and so the first premise says, whatever begins to exist has a cause for its coming into being. Whatever begins to exist has a cause for its coming into being. The second premise, the universe began to exist. Therefore, conclusion, the word therefore is the language of uh, a conclusion indicator. Therefore, the conclusion of your argument is the universe has a cause for its coming into being. Now, let's just look at this argument very briefly. Uh, we're asking the question, is this argument more plausible, more reasonable than its denial? Does this argument have genuine explanatory power? Well, let's look at the premises. I mean, the way you critique an argument is to uh, object to one of the premises. Are you going to object to the premise that whatever begins to exist has a cause for coming into being? I think that's a pretty tough premise to argue against. If something had a beginning, you're going to say that it had a beginning and that that beginning was causeless? That's a tough one. Some people try to do it, but that's a, that's a tough one. Or are you going to argue that the universe didn't, didn't begin to exist? And, and as I've mentioned, the brightest minds in the world now virtually all agree that the universe had a beginning. Well, if the premises are sound, then guess what? You're stuck with the conclusion. If whatever begins to exist has a cause for its coming into being, and if the universe began to exist, then the conclusion seems awfully strong, and that is that the universe has a cause for its coming into being. Now, we're not arguing certainty here. I'm simply asking for you to look at the, cause, the Kalam cosmological argument and ask yourself, is this argument more plausible and more reasonable than its denial? I think the answer to that question is, it clearly is. This is a plausible and reasonable uh, conclusion that the universe had a beginning uh, and that beginning things have a, have a cause and that the universe therefore has a cause. Here is an, in an incredible image. Uh, I'm sorry uh, for the folks that are in the audience that it's, it's not a bit uh, clearer. In fact, I wonder if we could kill the, the, the lights there, the, uh, these lights right above me. That might give us a, a little bit more uh, uh, clarity here. Uh, this image, thank you very much. Uh, this image was taken by the Hubble telescope. And uh, some of my friends who are professional astronomers and astrophysicists, uh, they, of course, have informed me that virtually nobody anymore looks through the lens of a telescope. And so uh, nobody sneaks up there in the atmosphere and peeks through the... Uh, the lens of the Hubble, it, it takes in photographic information and then the astronomers examine uh, those, those images. Well, this is known as the, the Hubble Deep Field uh, and it characterizes the early expanding universe and uh, 
to give you a little perspective, I'm not a scientist. I'm a layman. Uh, I am fortunate that I get to work with uh, some very uh, well-educated and gifted uh, astronomers and astrophysicists. But they told me a number of things about the Hubble telescope. Uh, it's, not the, it's not the largest or the, the greatest magnification in the world. There are a couple different telescopes uh, here on Earth uh, that are larger. But the Hubble telescope, of course, has the advantage of, of being out there in space and therefore it's not, uh, it doesn't have to look through the, the fuzzy atmosphere. If you've ever been driving uh, on the freeway, looking far down the freeway, it looks kind of fuzzy. Uh, well, that's the atmosphere. Uh, the Hubble is above. And so uh, if you could look at the images being brought through, uh, what I would say as a layman, if you could look through the telescope, uh, you could see a single quarter lying on the surface of the moon and you could identify the date on the quarter. Well, one of the unique things about astronomy is that you're, you actually are able to look at the past. Uh, if you walk out on a sunny day and look up toward the sun, you're not seeing the sun as it is right that second. You're seeing it as it was eight minutes ago. Uh, even when you look at the moon, the moon is much closer to the earth than the sun, obviously. But when you look up at the sun, you're not seeing it exactly as it is that second. It takes time for the light to travel from the sun and the moon to the surface of the, of the earth. Well, these incredible telescopes, which I think, again, tell us something about the unique technological abilities of human beings, um, you're able to look back and this image, the Hubble Deep Field, actually looks back in time to the early formation of the universe. Some of these images go back to about 350,000 years after the Big Bang. Amazing. Amazing. So what you see up there that look like Frisbees or UFOs, they're not Frisbees or UFOs. I assure you they're not UFOs. Uh, you can read a book that I wrote about UFOs uh, to hear my arguments as to why. Those are galaxies. And uh, so this is an incredible uh, evidence that the universe was one time very, very small. And it's been going through incredible um, expansion. Now, again, I'm trying to give you some quotations, first of all, by some of the brightest scientists in the world, but also by men and women who are not Christian. Because I want you to see that uh, there are some powerful scientific evidence for God. Here's the eminent physicist Paul Davies. He comments on the order and elegance. So first we've looked at the origin of the universe. Now we'll look at the order and elegance of the cosmos. Davies says this, he says, quote, all science proceeds on the assumption that nature is ordered uh, in a rational and intelligible way. You couldn't be a scientist if you thought the universe was a meaningless jumble of odds and ends. Uh, Davies, who uh, knows something about theology and philosophy, a very distinguished scholar, presently uh, professor at Arizona State University, uh, Davies recognizes that science kind of operates from a theological perspective. In fact, the roots of science are closely connected to the development of Christianity. Davies continues, he says, when the physicists probe to a deeper level of subatomic structure 
for astronomers extend the reach of their instruments, they expect to encounter additional elegant mathematical order. And so far, this faith has been justified. Well, let's think about that for a minute. We look up at the universe, and it's not chaotic. It's ordered. It reflects rationality. In fact, we can capture the universe through the prism of mathematical equations. Why would that be the case? Why would you expect... Why not chaos? Unless the universe was created and reflects the rationality of a being that stands above and beyond the universe. Here's one of my favorite quotations. It's by physicist Freeman Dyson, again, a skeptic. He made this statement relating to the fine-tuning of the universe. He says, quote, As we look out at the universe and identify the many accidents of physics and astronomy that have worked together for our benefit, it almost seems as if the universe must in some sense have known that we were coming. What? Yeah. It appears, and again, these are the leading, some of the leading scientists in the world, it seems like the universe has all of the narrowly drawn, fine-tuned characteristics to allow for the emergence of intelligent human beings. The universe is the just right place. Um, it is, uh, again, this idea of a just right universe to allow for, for human life. Paul Davies notes, again, the contingent nature of the cosmos. He says, it seems then that the physical universe does not have to be the way it is. It could have been otherwise. And so what we're getting at here is that a hospitable to human life universe was not necessitated by the laws of physics. The universe could have been completely inhospitable to human beings. It didn't have to be this way. The design and the purpose in the universe, the fine-tuning, were not guaranteed by the laws of physics. So how do we account for it? If it wasn't determined by physics, why is the universe, at least parts of the universe, hospitable to life? Well, the eminent physicist Roger Penrose, again a close associate of Stephen Hawking, has calculated the chance formulation of our fine-tuned universe. And this is what he says. He says, to get the universe that we have right now, it would be one part in 10 to the 10th to the 123rd power. And so I note that though I took as little math in college as possible, I know improbability when I see it. Now, my point here is really to make two points. And I I want you to, to look at the last two slides. One, the universe didn't have to be the way it is. It could have been very different. And two, the idea that it is the way it is, that is allowing for human life, is incredibly improbable. So that leads us to present it in a form of an argument. The teleological argument is the argument from design. Teleos is, one of the, is the Greek word for, for design or purpose. So here is an argument from fine-tuning, again, placed it within a syllogistic context. And so the first two statements are premises followed by the conclusion. First premise, the fine-tuning of the universe is due either to physical necessity, chance, or design. 
Second premise, it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Conclusion, therefore, it's due to design. And as we look at this argument, we realize, uh, we, we saw this with Paul Davies' comment, the universe didn't have to be the way it is. Uh, physics does not guarantee that the universe be this way. And so it's not cause, that is design and purpose in the universe, the fine-tuning, was not necessitated by physics. And as Roger Penrose has pointed out, the incredible improbability of chance causing it. Therefore, we make the conclusion that the fine-tuning, the design in the universe, is due to design. Uh, or to, uh, to uh, quote uh, one of the leading uh, physicists and cosmologists of the 20th century, Fred Hoyle, he says it looks like someone has monkeyed with the mathematics in order to allow for a universe that would be hospitable to life. So I ask you the question again, looking at this argument, are the premises and the conclusion more plausible and reasonable than their denials? I'm not arguing for certainty. I'm simply saying, is this argument more reasonable and more plausible than its denial? Does it seem to have greater explanatory power? In my view, it does. Okay, we're using this mnemonic device. We're using this memory technique. Uh, to talk about this dangerous idea. And this dangerous idea is that God actually makes sense. That it's not superstitious. That it is a very careful hypothesis or explanatory theory. And so the C dealt with the cosmos, its beginning, its complex fine-tuning, uh, issues of that nature. Now we move to the letter L in the word clear, life. Human beings possess consciousness, they possess free agency, and they have this great need for meaning and purpose in life we call existential meaning. Well, uh, I think that uh, identifying God and appealing to God makes more sense of the human condition than any other explanation, particularly the uh, the chance explanation that some of the new atheists talk about, where we're, we're in a universe that is the product of blind mechanistic natural processes. Uh, human consciousness, free agency, and the meaning of life fit better in a theistic worldview. Rather than an atheistic worldview context, or called naturalism, uh, these things fit better in a, in a theistic worldview. From a theistic per perspective, God possesses an infinite mind, ultimate freedom, and he defines the very nature of, of meaning and reality so that human beings would have consciousness and free agency and meaning. That seems to fit better into a theistic model of reality. Uh, where would human consciousness come from in an atheistic model? Well, I can tell you, uh, human consciousness would come from things that possess no consciousness at all. Personhood would come from that which is not personal. Where would life come from and meaning? From lifeless and meaningful realities. And so I would join that theistic community in arguing that uh, God makes more sense of these meaningful realities. That God is a better, preferable causal explanation. The naturalist worldview seems to fit better with things like physicalism 
Everything is physical, reducible to physics and chemistry, materialism. Everything is made up of matter and energy, determinism. Uh, everything in that physical system obeys physical laws and nihilism. The idea that uh, there is no ultimate meaning and purpose to the universe. And so I would argue that the life that we experience here in this world is much better explained if we adopt the idea that God exists. And not just any God. The God that has the attributes, powers, and qualities to be able to explain things like human consciousness, free agency, and human existential meaning. Here's a photo of uh, a very famous painting called The Scream. And uh, this painting is to represent people living in the modern world uh, where they're asking, is there meaning to life? Is there purpose in life? And the, the painting represents the idea that in the modern world, people have been told through philosophical perspectives that there's no meaning and purpose to life. And so this person is hearing that small voice tell him that there's no meaning to life. Well, you know what? People uh, can live quite some time without food. There are a lot of stories of people in the Holocaust who went a very long time without uh, good meals. You can, you can live a shorter time without water uh, under the best circumstances. You might be able to live a, uh, a couple days without water, maybe several weeks or months without food. Uh, but I'll tell you what, you, you can only live a few seconds without air. But you can't live any time at all without meaning and purpose and significance. A lot of people in our great country of America take their life every year because they don't believe there's any meaning and purpose and significance in life. Well, I, if I were a naturalist, I would have to conclude there isn't. But if you adopt the idea that there is a God who has created us and who has entered the world of time and space uh, in order to have a relationship with us, then life can explode with meaning. Okay, we're using the mnemonic device, the word clear, C-L-E-A-R. The C is cosmos, the L is life. How about the E? Well, it stands for ethics. When we think about ethics, when we think about right and wrong, when we think about good and bad, we say that objective ethics are prescriptive ethics. That is, that these are moral principles that tell us the way things should or ought to be. To have real ethics, there has to be an ought or a should. They have to be objective, meaning that they're independent of you, outside of you. And that they involve ethical duties and human value. That's what ethics are all about. So objective morality is valid and binding, independent of human opinion and perspective. For example, uh, murdering innocent people for the fun of it is always wrong. That's an objective moral principle. It says there are things you should do, things you ought not to do, and that things have value and we have duties independent of our opinion or perspective. That's the way the world is. Just like the laws of gravity are built into the nature of the world, so there are moral values built into the nature of reality. 
Christian philosopher William Lane Craig explains it this way. He says, quote, if God exists, objective moral values exist. To say that there are objective moral values is to say that something is right or wrong independently of whether anybody believes it to be so. So if there are moral principles that are objective, then there are certain oughts and shoulds that are built into the nature of reality and they're right or wrong independent of whether you agree with them or even if you perceive them. They are really there. They are objective moral principles. Craig continues, he says, quote, it is to say, for example, that Nazi anti-Semitism was morally wrong, even though the Nazis who carried out the Holocaust thought it was good. And it would still be wrong, even if the Nazis had won World War II. See, there are a lot of people today who embrace moral relativism, and they think you just invent right or wrong. Or they think whoever wins the war is right. But if anti-Semitism is wrong, if murdering people because they are of a different race or hold a different religion than you, if killing people without good reason is really wrong, then it would be wrong even if that group of people who had that immoral philosophy won the war. And I think most of us come to realize that there are things in the world that we ought to do and other things that we ought not to do. And so, uh, in the Holocaust, you had six million human beings that were exterminated. A third of those people were children. And uh, at the Nuremberg Trials, the Chief Justice of the United States responded to Hermann Goering, the head of the Luftwaffe. Goering said, the only reason you're judging us is because you won the war. If we'd won the war, we'd put you on trial. And the American chief justice said, no, we're not, uh, we're not judging you because we won the war. We're appealing to a universal objective law. And that universal objective law says, thou shall not murder. We're appealing to the law of God. I can only echo those wonderful words. To judge the tyrants of history, we must appeal to a universal, non-relativistic, non-cultural law. Objective ethical obligations and duties fit better in a theistic worldview, that there are rights and wrongs, there are shoulds, there are things you ought to do and not, ought not to do. They fit better into a theistic model. In a purely naturalist worldview, objective morality seems ungrounded, unaccounted for, unjustified, out of place, even foreign. If no God exists and life is just a chance accident, why would there be anything right or wrong? Why wouldn't there be moral chaos? Richard Dawkins has written a book entitled The God Delusion, which a lot of people find to be good ammunition for attacking God. I would tell them this, that it's not a very good book at all, that there is better atheists, more formidable atheists than Richard Dawkins. And one of those atheists was a man named J.L. Mackey. Uh, who wrote a book, uh, The Miracle of Theism. And I think it's one of the most formidable books I've ever read in support of atheists. I don't find it ultimately persuasive, but I find Mackey to be much more intellectually credible than Dawkins, Hitchens, Sam Harris, and Dan Dennett. Again, the four horsemen of the new atheism. This is what Mackey said in his book, The Miracle of Theism, page 115. He says, quote, moral properties 
Moral properties constitute so odd a cluster of properties and relations that they're most unlikely to have arisen in the ordinary course of events without an all-powerful God to have created them. Now, Mackey is the atheist of all atheists. But he says that if there are objective moral values, if there are things you ought not to do that are independent of you, like murdering people uh, who are innocent victims, he says the only way that that objective moral principles could be there is if God were the source of them. That's quite a comment from an atheist. Atheist philosopher Mackey argued that morality was merely invented by human beings and was therefore descriptive and subjective in nature. Mackey, I think, was trying to live consistently with his worldview. He says, look, if there are objective moral values, then there's likely God. But he was willing to bite the bullet and said, I don't believe in God, and therefore I don't think there are objective moral values. I think morality is merely invented. It is... It is descriptive, it is subjective, it is not objective, and uh, it is not prescriptive, but descriptive. So he was willing to bite the bullet. I think Mackey made a misjudgment, but I have to conclude that if you're an atheist, I think it's much better to conclude, much more consistent with your worldview, to conclude that there are no objective moral values. But then you would have to say, I think, that it was not objectively wrong for Hitler to murder six million people because he disagreed with their skin color, their ethnic background, and their religion. If there are objective moral principles, it seems that what comes with it is Almighty God. If God does not exist and human beings are merely highly evolved animals, then it's difficult to see why the Nazi Holocaust against the Jews was morally wrong in any objective sense. Of course, there are people today who deny that it ever happened. Uh, That's a very difficult argument, I think, uh, to, to present. But there are people who attempt to do it. How is it any different from the mass extermination of an animal species? There's a hillside in Riverside where I like to hike because it gives me a good workout for my heart. And uh, there are lots of little beasties out there in the field, uh, ants and little creatures. And uh, the rule that I made with these little beasties is on their turf, I stay out of their way. and my turf, they stay out of my way. And my wife, uh, Joan, who is a very gracious and kind person, Uh, If ants invade our house, she'll exterminate them. She will bring full force to get rid of these little creatures. And she has no moral uh, nerve in her body. She will just uh, obliterate them. Well, if life on this planet is the product of blind, mechanistic, natural processes, what's the difference between my wife killing a bunch of ants and Hitler killing a bunch of Jews? Unless, unlike the ants, the Jews, as human beings, are made in the image of God and have inherent dignity and moral worth. Then you better be very careful. If you kill people in the image of God, even more so kill people who are the covenant people of God. You will have to answer for all of that. But if God doesn't exist, would there be any difference between killing some lower level of life as opposed to killing some higher level of life. What's the difference? Brain capacity? Is that it? 
Atheists raise the problem of evil as an objection to believing in God. But without God, how do they account for the moral goodness that evil violates? So if you're troubled that God allowed the Holocaust, then where did the good come from that you know that the, that the Nazis violated? I then raise the question, do the atheists have a problem of the good? Because they assert we have a problem of evil. What about a problem of the good? Dostoevsky, of course, said that without God, all things are permissible. But with God, things are, some things are fundamentally wrong. Uh, here is a, a photograph, of course, of Auschwitz. I have, uh, I have to tell you, I have never been able to um, get away from World War II. Uh, I, I'm not sure I've ever given a talk in my life where I didn't talk about World War II in one way or another. And the reason for that is I just can't get my mind around the death of 60 or 70 million people. I just can't get my mind around the incredible things that went on in that war. And uh, to know that my father was involved in it makes it very, very personal. Well, if your train went through the front gate of Auschwitz, your life expectancy then became, became two days. Two days. And uh, Hearst, the commandant of this camp, said that uh, somewhere between two and two and a half million people were put to death in this camp in Poland, Auschwitz. So let's, uh, let's construct the argument, just as we did previously to the cosmological argument, the argument from design, teleological. Let's use the moral argument. We'll use it as a syllogism, two premises followed by a conclusion. If God does not exist, premise one, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Premise two, objective moral values and duties do exist. It really is wrong to murder innocent people. Therefore, God exists. Is, again, is this more plausible and reasonable than its denial? Does it possess explanatory power? Are you going to attack premise one? Are you going to say that uh, if God exists, that objective moral values are not connected? Are you going to deny objective moral values? Are you going to be like J.L. Mackey and just bite the bullet and say, there really isn't any real right and wrong in life? I don't think most of us are willing to do that. Therefore, I think we're stuck with the conclusion uh, that there are objective morals in the world, that they need an explanation, and the best explanation is that they have their source in God. Okay, C-L-E-A-R. Well, let's look at the A in this little uh, mnemonic device. Uh, the A is for abstractions. What are abstractions? Those are the things that are so meaningful in our world, but we can't see them, smell them, hear them, taste them, or touch them. Things like numbers, propositions, logic, universals, all of those invisible things that are so very meaningful to our life. And I might tell you that you've never in your life seen a number. Never. Numbers are not physical. They don't, they don't exist in the physical world. They're conceptual. They're principles. You might have seen somebody write the number of nine on a whiteboard, but that's just ink representing a symbol that represents nineness. Um, but nevertheless, we argue that these are conceptions, uh, conceptual principles that have incredible importance. They're non-physical entities. 
How do we explain them? Where do they come from? Einstein, who helped uh, develop uh, mathematical uh, theories like general relativity and special relativity, well, those theories made uh, Big Bang cosmology possible. It made uh, uh, travel into space possible. But notice what Einstein was doing. He came up with mathematical principles in his mind, and they just happened to match the way the universe really is. Now, if you're an atheist and you don't believe in God, why should, why should subjective mathematical principles in the mind of some person actually match reality? If God exists, I think it makes good sense. Particularly the Christian God, the biblical God, he created the universe. He created it according to namos and logos, laws and logic. He made us in his image. He then networked the universe and us and himself together. And therefore, uh, human beings can understand to some degree, to some level, the intelligibility of the universe. But what if God doesn't exist? Is it just some incredible coincidence? Well, again, I'll ask you, which is more plausible? Which is more reasonable? Some of the most important and wondrous realities of life cannot be detected by the human senses. These abstract, intelligible realities such as are conceptual in nature and consist of such things as numbers, propositions, sets, properties, the laws of logic, and universals. Can't see them. But they make life meaningful and intelligible. Here's a quotation from one of the leading philosophers in the world who is also himself a Christian philosopher. His name is Alvin Plantinga. He says this, quote, it seems plausible to think of numbers as dependent upon or even constituted by intellectual activity, but there are too many of them to arise as a result of human intellectual activity. We should therefore think of them as the concepts of an unlimited mind, a divine mind. Where do numbers come from? Why are there so many of them? Conceptual principles. The argument here is that those meaningful realities that cannot be perceived by the senses need an explanation, and that a viable explanation is that they flow from the mind of God. Abstract entities are considered by many to be objective, universal, and invisible. They don't appear to be physical in nature, nor are they readily reducible to or explainable in terms of physical matter and its processes. My favorite number is nine. Um, but where does nineness come from? Now, years ago, when I was taught that uh, there were nine planets in the solar system, um, I would have raised the question, did the, did the concept nineness exist in the universe before there were pre people to perceive of the nine planets? Well, I think the answer is an obvious yes. There were nine planets in the, in, in the cosmos, in, in our solar system, before there were any human beings to recognize nineness. Well, then I guess nineness must have existed prior to the human ability to, to recognize it. That seems like mathematical principles existed before there were human beings. Maybe they existed in the mind of God. Abstract entities fit better in a theistic worldview than in a naturalistic one. In the Christian worldview, conceptual realities follow, flow from the infinite mind of God. It is very difficult to conceive of how abstractions could arise from a worldview of physicalism and materialism. 
If everything is physical and material, then what do you do with those things, those abstract realities that are by nature not physical and material? The last letter in the word clear is R. What about religion? Talk briefly about the sense of the divine, the religious experience that we have, that there have been historically verified, supported miracles. What do we do with Jesus Christ's unique claims, character, and credentials? Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about the awareness of God. Uh, John Calvin said that God created human beings to be hunters and gatherers of the truth. He also, in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, spoke of the sensus divinitatis, this seemingly awareness that human beings have of God's existence. Scripture seems to reveal that human beings at their core know that there's a God. Romans 1, God apparently created human beings in the expressed image of himself with a built-in awareness of the Creator. If people do, in fact, possess an awareness of God, then humankind's universal religiosity is explained. People seem to be inherently religious. They can't seem to get away from the idea of meaning and purpose and that they have some relationship to the most meaningful things of life. Maybe God created us in a way so that we have an intuitive awareness of him. If if God exists, then that may be a viable explanation for the human religiosity that we see. Here's Calvin's quote from the Institutes. He says, quote, There is within the human mind, and indeed by natural instinct, an awareness of divinity. This we take to be beyond controversy. To prevent anyone from taking refuge in the pretense of ignorance, God himself has implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. Now, if Calvin's right, and God made us, to have an intuitive awareness. Now, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, we suppress that truth. It's like a pedal that you push down. It keeps popping back up. You have to keep pushing it down. But if God does exist, and if Calvin is properly interpreted Paul, then that would be a good explanation as to why people are so very religious. Uh, There are, again, the, the atheists, who say that it's just intelligent not to believe in God. But the truth of the matter is that 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 viewpoint that God does not exist has always been a very small minority. Most people seem intuitively aware that there is a God and that they're morally accountable to him. Now, what about Jesus Christ? What are we to do with him? He equated himself with Yahweh. He took the most sacred divine titles, I am, ego, me in Greek, and he applied it to himself. Uh, what do we do with, with him? John 8:58, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. And his, some of his Jewish contemporaries pick up stones to stone him. Jesus claims to be God. Uh, he reaches into the Old Testament and takes the most sacred name, the, the name that God is prefers to recall himself in the book of Isaiah 45 through 48, the book of Exodus. God likes to be called I am or I am he. Jesus has this little dialogue and says, if you really want to know who I am, I am a claim to deity. Here's an Eastern church icon of Jesus. Um, In the reform tradition, of course, 
we get a little uneasy when people use images uh, in their devotional life. So what do we do with Jesus? What do we do with his divine claims? Jesus exhibited a matchless moral character that succeeded in changing the world forever. He literally turned the world upside down. Even the world's greatest philosophers and religious leaders like Socrates, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, Confucius and Moses, they pale in comparison to him. He seems to be the most unlike human human. Jesus fulfilled dozens of very specific Old Testament prophecies concerning the identity, mission and message of the coming Messiah. These prophecies written hundreds of years before Jesus' own birth give precise details concerning the birth, heritage, life, death, the long-awaited Messiah. What we're doing here is, of course, talking about Jesus' resume, the claims that he makes, the character that he has, uh, his, his incredible life that corresponds to prophetic statements made hundreds of years before he was born. Jesus was also a prolific miracle worker. He healed incurable diseases, restored sight to the blind, multiplied food, calmed storms, walked on water, and even raised the dead. And Jesus' enemies never questioned the authenticity of these miraculous acts. They came up with explanatory theories. The devil made him do it. But they never never denied that he did do it. So what are we then to do with the greatest of all the miracles, the resurrection from the dead? And the evidence that supports it, the empty tomb. Can you imagine the apostles preaching in downtown Jerusalem or in Galilee when Jesus' body was in the tomb and everybody knew where the tomb was? There's no way the tomb had to be empty. But then the question is, what happened to the chain of custody? The body was taken down from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea and Jesus' women followers. The apostles knew where the tomb was. But on Easter Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. And Christians, sometimes friendly to Jesus, sometimes not, began seeing appearances of him, post-mortem appearances, Christ's post-crucifixion appearances. He appears to Peter and James and John. He appears to a number of women. He appears inside uh, houses, outside He appears to large numbers of people, more than 500 individuals. And some of them are people that are not predisposed toward liking or accepting him. The conversion and the transformation of Saul of Tarsus to become the Apostle Paul. One evangelical scholar said that Saul becoming Paul would be like Hitler becoming a Jew. I would say it would be like Ronald Reagan becoming a communist. It it would be like... um, Uh, Winston Churchill becoming a Nazi. That's the incredible nature of that transformation. The emergence of the Christian church. Where did all this begin? And why would it ever begin unless people had concluded that they really had seen the resurrected Christ? The day of worship shifted from the seventh to the first day of the week, which illustrated reflection on the truth of the resurrection. One of the strongest evidences that Christian theism's truth claims are correct is their ability to account for and justify the many diverse and undeniable realities of life. This, of course, is, I think, a very dangerous idea. A dangerous idea is an idea that turns the paradigm upside down. 
A dangerous idea is an idea that if you believe it, it has deep worldview implications. The argument that I'm presenting this evening is that belief in God makes the most sense of all of the meaningful realities of life. The Christian faith involves knowledge and is uniquely compatible with reason. That's a dangerous idea. To believe that God makes the most sense of life and is actually a reasonable worldview. Well, uh, all of this data, of course, in this series of lectures, uh, this is the fourth uh, in a series of seven. It is a new book manuscript that I'm that I'm working on. And uh, writing is not an easy thing. Uh, I like the old sentiment. When people ask me, do you like writing? I say, I like having written. I like it when the book's all done and people like it. I don't like the daily day grind of, of working on a book manuscript, but there are things in all of the lectures that I've given thus far that are taken in one way or another from my book, A World of Difference, or from my book, Without a Doubt, and Lord willing, there'll be a new book entitled Historic Christianity, Seven Dangerous Ideas, where we'll, where we'll look at those uh, in written form. Well, let me stop here and uh, Remind you that you can come to the microphone and, and ask a question or uh, we can have a bit of a dialogue about some of the issues that we have discussed. And I ask you to come to the microphone so that when these wonderful podcasts go across the cosmos, uh, well, at least planet Earth, I don't know if the Martians are interested in the Academy lectures, but uh, if they're intelligent, they would be. Uh, but you have to you have to come to the microphone so that we can re- record your thoughtful question. You made the statement in the lecture tonight that the scientific community has conceded that God created time, that God created the world out of nothing. I'm suspicious that as we move closer to the return of Christ that there's going to be people, Christians, led to believe um, that, you know, there's more in common with um, the scientific community. There's going to be uh, more in common with possibly atheists. And I'm trying to ask, I'm asking you, could you underline and, and lay in our laps scriptures that would warn me as a Christian to watch out for this kind of thing. I mean, there's, there's a, there seems to be a softening, there seems to be a, a closer connection to those in this community. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't applaud the fact that we have more in common and that they've alluded to the fact that there is a creation but but isn't there something that you could say to warn us about the gospel? It's basically the reality that I see. They, we can talk about what we can see in our own grasp or what we can see from our own eye. But God obviously intervened and the answer was Christ crucified for us. Okay, let me let me try to take a take a whack at that uh that question. Um, 
I think, first of all, the point that I would want to make is this, that it seems to me that many of these scientific uh, thinkers are telling us not that there is a God, but they are telling us that that matter, energy, space and time had a singular beginning and that the universe came from a source that was not made of matter, energy, space and time. So so they're not necessarily telling us what banged, who banged or why it banged. But they are implicitly telling us that the universe came into being. So then we're drawing certain conclusions that it had a cause and that it likely had a personal cause. Uh, I think what we can conclude is that the scientific community as a whole has indicated that uh, the universe had a very amazing and mysterious origin. Now, that, that doesn't mean some of them haven't given up on the idea that maybe there's still a, uh, a loophole that gets them away from God. And, you know, scientists have worldviews. They don't do their work in, a, in, a, in, a, in an abstract context apart from worldview thinking. So some, some atheists are not terribly happy with the idea of the beginning of the universe. Uh, nevertheless, and some of them come up with the idea of a multiverse, but even if you look at the multiverse, where there may be this proposal that there may be a near-infinite number of universes, all of these people who propose this theory still argue that something had to begin at all. Now, I, I think maybe to try to go closer to the heart of your question, um, Believing that the universe likely had a beginning and believing that the universe is complex and fine-tuned and believing that human beings don't seem to be able to grasp all of these things isn't necessarily going to lead you to believe in the personal God of the Bible and in the Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Arguing that belief in God is scientifically plausible doesn't necessarily lead you to a conversion to Jesus Christ. I must tell you, however, that some of the brightest scientists in the world happen to be Christian. Some of them are not. Uh, some, some are very opposed to the idea of God. Others think that God is quite plausible and others even conclude that Christianity is the most plausible interpretation. I think your question is likely getting at the issue of uh, how do people come into a saving relationship with Christ? And of course, the answer to that is by grace. Through, the, through hearing the gospel preached, through, through hearing what I hope is part of my talk tonight, the plausibility of the Christian worldview, the reasonableness of embracing the Christian vision of reality. Uh, I don't think that uh, you, can co you can intellectually coerce someone into becoming a Christian. I don't think you can take a barrel of facts and data and information on the truth of Christianity and dump it over somebody's head and they'll give up and say, I give, I'm a Christian. I don't think it works that way. On the other hand, I also think it's a mistake, however, to think that God, the Holy Spirit, who is in the business of transforming a person's character, inclining their will, taking the hardness of their heart away, allowing their heart to become soft, um, allowing them to believe. I think it's a mistake, however, to think that God the Spirit doesn't use arguments 
rationality and scientific plausibility. What, what I'm arguing tonight is that, the, that believing in God makes sense. And to believe that God makes sense of life is a very dangerous idea. If you accept it, it'll turn your world upside down. And there are a lot of people out there who argue that belief in God is based upon superstition, based upon emotion, based upon desperation. But I think my presentation tonight and many of the sources that I can recommend indicate that belief in God makes sense. In fact, it makes a lot more sense than the, the alternative interpretations. And what I think that then allows for is people to consider the truth of Scripture, to hear and to examine the claims of Christ, to consider openly the claims of the gospel. And when that happens, God can work in their hearts to persuade them of the truth of these types of issues. So I'll complete my answer by quoting Augustine. Augustine says, reason does not cause faith, but reason everywhere supports faith. And that's the very purpose of my presentation tonight, to show that reason seems to be very strongly in support of the Christian In Romans, I remember reading that uh, the evidence that we have leaves us without excuse. And that I've always thought that's pretty much the apologetic goal. It's almost the limit of a rational argument. Um, would you agree or would you like to extend that? Well, I, I, I certainly think that general revelation, as we call it, uh, that is, knowledge of God that goes out to all people at all times everywhere. Um, observing the cosmos, Paul in Romans 1 says that people see, understand, and know. The Greek word is gnosko. Uh, they see, understand, and know that there's a God. Romans 2, that they're morally accountable to him, yet they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I think that clearly general revelation serves the purpose of leaving people epistemologically and morally in an unexcused position. Nevertheless, I I think that there may be more of an argument to, to be made. That is, maybe there is a powerful way of linking special revelation, this propositional book that where Christ is revealed and it ultimately recorded in Scripture, that maybe our apologetic could be powerful if we were to tie the two books together. That is, and, and that's, of course, what I've attempted to do tonight. I'm, I'm presenting a cumulative case. I talk about the beginning of the cosmos. I talk about abstractions. I talk about um, uh, existential issues of life. But then I also present Jesus Christ. So maybe there is an apologetic where we look at the arguments from both general revelation and special revelation. And, of course, I'm arguing you can present these as individual arguments or you can make them as a cumulative case. So C-L-E-A-R, the cosmos, life, ethics, abstractions, religion, in particular Christ, I think makes a powerful cumulative case that, that people ought to consider, if they're going to be rational, the truth of our faith. And so, yes, general revelation leaves people without excuse. I would argue, however, that when it's mixed appropriately with an appeal to special revelation, 
it can have probative force in demonstrating the truthfulness and certainly plausibility and rationality of our faith as Christians. I had one other question. Sure. Um, this uh, cumulative uh, case that you made this evening. Yeah. Uh, I guess never before had I seen just how much faith it takes to become an atheist. Um, would you agree that there is amount of faith that goes on within an atheist's mind? I do. I, I do. Um, and again, I think that when somebody asks the question, does God exist? The theist stands to his or her feet and says, yes. Well, if you say, yes, God exists, then I think you have some kind of burden to provide a basis, a rational basis for your belief that God exists. But see, I also think that applies to the atheist. If we ask the question, does God exist? The atheist rises to his or her feet and says, no, he doesn't. God does not exist. Then I think the atheist bears a burden of proof. On what basis do you deny God's existence? I think the arguments that we've looked at briefly tonight just begin to scratch the surface of the implausibility of atheism. Uh, that it doesn't can carry the kind of explanatory power, the kind of rationality. Uh, I think it, it is a type of faith. I think uh, faith is very hard to get away from. I think all of us in this world are presented with alternative points of view that we gravitate one way or another. And even agnosticism, I mean, even if you're an agnostic and you say, well, I, I haven't come to a formative judgment as to how to explain God or these kinds of things. I, I, think, I think all of us come to positions where we have to make sense of the world, where we have to make sense of life and where we're appealing and trusting and putting our confidence in one explanation as opposed to any other. I think that's faith. And yes, I think atheism is a form of religious confidence or trust. I just don't think that uh, uh, their explanatory theory makes much sense. Um, I don't think it can explain the meaningful realities of life. I think atheism is highly inadequate highly inadequate to explain life in this world uh, and uh, our, our place in it. So, yeah, um, of course, atheists don't like to be told that. They're not terribly friendly to people who say that they have a type of faith because they like to portray the idea that they're reasonable and rational and the rest of us are just superstitious people. Um, the Bible, of course, says that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. And the Hebrew word for fool conveys the idea of a, of a density, um, a darkness, a, a moral and spiritual and intellectual darkness. And uh, that they are denying God as a willful choice rather than as a persuasion based upon evidence. So, yeah, I think I think the answer is that. Uh, all of us have faith. Some faith is more plausible and reasonable than others.